feel like in one sense I should be apologizing to you. I read you basically a chapter of the Old Testament with the exception of five verses this morning. And we're going to read another chapter of the Old Testament, <laughs> this time all the way through uh, Genesis 43. But in another sense, I, I would love to be able to preach all the way from Genesis 43 to Genesis 45 uh, and really uh, get, get that um, all in one because the applications uh, that one can make then are, are much more profound. But uh, this, is, this is enough text for one night. So let us, uh, before we turn our attention once again to God's working um, in bringing his people to Egypt and preparing them for the time that they would be in exile, or rather not exile, they would be in bondage, that's, that's the word, uh, and then released later on to go into the promised land once they had become a mighty nation. Uh, before we read about that, let us go ahead and seek God's face and ask for his blessing. Please join him. O oh, sovereign Lord, I pray this day that you would reveal yourself to us through your word and your working. We know, O oh Lord, uh, that although it's, it's a, a trite way of putting it, we know that all history is his story. It tells us the way that you have been working out redemption from beginning to end. We know, O oh Lord, that while we live in a world that is filled with things that, uh, that confound us, that uh, confuse and, and cause pain and turmoil, yet we know, O oh Lord, that you divinely overrule all things and you turn everything to good. Help us to see that. Help us to see that the good of your church will be affected in everything that happens on earth, even the things that just don't seem to make sense. Lord, we are about to read about a family that was very confused about what you were doing, but your purposes were clear throughout. Remind us of that as we're reading, that this applies to us and our families and our lives as well. We pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Genesis chapter 43 and verses 1 through 34. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Now the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass, when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our, your, our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, Why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had still another brother? But they said, The man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words. Could we possibly have known that he would say, Bring your brother down? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the lad with me. And we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would return this second time. And their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. 
Take your brother also and arise, go back to the man, and may God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So the men took that present and Benjamin, and they took double money in their hand and arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the men did as Joseph ordered, and they brought the men into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house, and they said, It is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may make a case against us and seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. When they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, but it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks, and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it back in our hand, and we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. But he said, Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. And they brought Simeon out to them. So the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet, and he gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present, which was in their hand, into the house, and bowed down before him to the earth. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God, be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out and he restrained himself and said, Serve the bread. So they set him a place by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. Then he took servings to them from before him but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, when last we heard from Israel, that is, of course, Jacob's new name, he was determined, absolutely determined, not to send the brothers back to Egypt. Uh, and so, as far as they knew, Simeon was still languishing in prison in Egypt. Uh, as far as they knew, he might even have died by now. Um, he uh, still will not allow them to go. And he held on, held them back, until probably the signs of starvation were beginning to creep into his household. I have no doubt that he remembered what he had said or what had been said to him about Benjamin and the fact that he could not return to Egypt unless they had the, the, uh, the brother with them. But his brothers come to him and they remind him anyway. And it is at this point 
that he chastens them for actually telling the Egyptian in charge, this man that they spoke up, so much about their, their family. He essentially says, why did you idiots tell him that you had another brother? You've, you've made me very sad. You have not acted wisely. And they turn around and they say, he questioned us pointedly. We, we panicked. Uh, how are we supposed to know he'd asked to see him? That's not a normal request, is it? Now, in the back and forth that we see here, obviously we see that Israel is tremendously frustrated with the situation. He does not want, under any circumstances, to send Benjamin into Egypt. He is not even willing to send him if it's the only way that he can redeem uh, Simeon. It's only because they're all going to starve to death and he understands, well, if I don't send Benjamin, we're all going to die anyway, so I, I suppose I have to. But he's still resisting. Normally, of course, it is parents who advise their children. Uh, but in this case, of course, it is the children who are pleading with their parent to see sense and to actually go ahead and send them back with Benjamin, no matter how much it may sorrow him and his heart to do so. And finally, we see Israel relents. He probably realized, as I said, it was a choice between possibly losing Benjamin and definitely losing the entire family. No doubt the littlest ones were already beginning to suffer. So they prepare. What do they do? They, they get some luxury items, pistachios, balm. That was expensive stuff. Uh, and they still uh, have a little of these luxury items left. And they use them. Uh, hopefully to appease the wrath of this Egyptian, the prime minister of Egypt whom they'd, re uh, they'd met before. Um, it is, of course, possible that while Egypt had a lot of uh, grain left, they didn't have many exotic nuts. Pistachios, for instance, are not native to Egypt. They're actually native to Mesopotamia. You find them in Iraq and Syria, I'm told, uh, by people who served in Iraq that they'd actually seen pistachio trees uh, and things like that. But the, um, the issue... There is, they're looking for things that they're hoping will placate him, will turn aside his wrath. We're reminded of how Jacob attempted to placate the wrath of uh, Esau, the imagined wrath of Esau, with presents. You remember how he had sent him pieces, bits and parcels of his herd in an allotment so that Esau would be overwhelmed with his generosity. He doesn't have much, but he says, here, take it and take double money. Uh, but most importantly, what does he send them away with? He sends them away with the blessing of the only one who can actually help them. And who is that? God, El Shaddai in this case, the Lord Almighty, the one who can do all things. Now, there is a lesson here for us if we can only see it. And it is this. It's not just, obviously, the sons are being tested. But it's not just the sons who are being tested. Israel that is, Jacob is being tested again. Would he trust the Lord with the thing that he was most reluctant to part with? And that is his most beloved son at this point in time, Benjamin. Like Jacob, or rather like Joseph before him, he is, uh, that is, Jacob is in danger of making Joseph his heart idol. And it is not a surprise, therefore, that this is the thing that is demanded from him. Will he give him up? Will he trust in the Lord? Brothers and sisters, I, I have to tell you that it is often the case that the Lord will test you at exactly the point where you have that thing that you will not give up, that has become a heart idol to you. He will put you to the test and say, are you willing to trust me with this thing? 
or has it so captivated your heart that it's taken the place that only I should occupy in your life? And it, it is possible that that is what had happened with Israel. So he finally gives in. He gives up his son, and thankfully he sends him off with the other brothers. Now, we could have hoped, we would have hoped that he would send him off with more than a, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. It's uh, almost reminiscent of, of Esther's, if I perish, I perish, before she goes into the king. Uh, but hopefully we're not looking at fatalism here, but rather a declaration. If it's in, it, it's in the Lord's hands. If he determines that this thing is going to come to pass, it's going to come to pass. So he's acknowledged the sovereignty of God. But we need to understand this was still the hardest thing that he ever had to do. He's sending away the link, the last link in his mind to his beloved wife, Rachel. And once Benjamin is gone from sight, gone hundreds of miles to this foreign nation where he might be tortured and killed or, or never come back, that's it. He, though, gives in, and he is willing to part with him, and that is a good thing. Well, the brothers go down to Egypt, and they assume that all is lost, of course, the moment that Joseph sends, um, sends them to his home. There's kind of this... Uh, this um, I don't know how you would put it. It's kind of this backwoods uh, response uh, amongst them. Uh, they're dealing with the second richest man in, in Egypt. This is a man who's second only to Pharaoh at a time when Egypt was still at the, uh, at the high point of its prosperity. We have these uh, backwoods guys from Canaan who have come, and they're afraid that he's going to steal their donkeys. This has all been this elaborate subterfuge to get a few guys, a few shepherds from Canaan, and their donkeys as slaves. I mean, we would look at that and say, this is ridiculous. This is like thinking that the oil sheik has invited you over in order to steal your Chevy Volt, which he has eyes on. You know, that uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely absurd, but nonetheless, they are racked with guilt and fear at this point in time from what has happened in their lives before. Uh, and they, again, are fearsome, uh, fearful about the matter of the money. But the steward who meets them at the door uh, assures them, I had your money. And he says to them, the money was obviously a gift from God. Now, we see that the steward has actually, and this is, this is an important thing. Clearly, Joseph has been sharing his religion with the members of his household. Your God and the God of your fathers has done this. It's, it is something that, uh, that the Lord has done for you. Now, in a sense, this was true. We remember that everything that's going on here has been arranged specifically by the Lord God because it was his intention to bring them into the land of Israel. I mean, the land of Egypt, to bring Israel and his children. Man, this is getting very complicated. It would be so much easier if it had just stayed Jacob, and now it's Israel, and we're talking about Israel the people, Israel the land, and Israel the man here. So Israel the man is going to be brought into Egypt with his son so that Israel the nation can grow and then be ready to enter into Israel the land, the promised land that God was going to give them. But we need to understand this is all part of God's plan. Now we can look at that and, you know, we've got the, we've got the bird's eye view. We know all of the backstory. We know what's secretly happening and, and so on. But keep in mind, none of the members of the family did. It's rather like Job. Job had no idea about the heavenly conflict, the uh, exchange that had occurred before the, uh, the throne of God between God and the devil. Do you see my servant Job? All he did was experience 
this series of calamities and then these terrible comforters who come and accuse him of being an awful sinner as his faith is being tested. Now the brothers don't know Joseph is still alive. Jacob has no, Israel has no idea that his son Joseph is still alive. They just see these unfathomable events occurring. Now, I want to suggest this to you. That happens in our lives as well. Things that we never expected to happen, happen. And our tendency at that point is to say, as I said last week, as, as Israel essentially wailed, everything is against me. Or to think this shouldn't be happening. I have to tell you, the people who believe in the sovereignty of God, and I hope that includes all of us, we can never say this shouldn't be happening in truth because we know that everything is in the hands of a sovereign God. Now, that does not mean that everything in and of itself is good. For instance, the murder, the judicial murder of Jesus Christ on the cross was an evil thing. In fact, it was the greatest evil that mankind has ever done. And yet God took that greatest evil and used it to bring about the greatest good. God does that. Now, the difficult thing is it's easy to sit in this room to read about what was happening in their lives in the Bible and to make application of it and say, yes, yes, I see that. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, those silly Israelites not realizing God was in charge and everything's going to be revealed and everything's going to be fine. We can do that and sort of smirk, uh, perhaps, but how often do we do that in our lives? Oh, that silly Andy not realizing that God's still in charge and everything's going to be fine. And no matter what, you know, I never do that. Never. Not in the midst. Everything is against me. You know, that's still my heart cry. Oh, yeah, no, in the Bible it was all arranged by God. But here, no. What foolishness, though. What utter foolishness. I hope we see as we've gone through Genesis that as these things came to pass, they came to pass specifically because God had ordained them. He'd even told their forefather Abraham, okay, they're going to enter into a foreign land. They're going to be there for 400 years. He told them exactly how long and then they're going to be released and so on. It's all planned out. And yet still there's a lack of trust amongst God's people. That's so often the way. We need to try to overcome that though. You and I, we need to try to overcome that and trust in God in those moments. But in any event, now they are very scared. But the steward comforts them, and then Simeon is released to us, uh, released to, to them. He's fine. So that must have been a great reassurance to them. And they come into the banqueting hall. And it's interesting the way that they're, they're, they're seated, isn't it? There's actually three different tables. There's the high table that the Lord sits at. And then there's the, the second table, the second highest table of the Egyptians who served him. And then finally, there's the third table that's set out for these Canaanites. Now, the interesting thing is, why is Joseph sitting alone? Well, of course, he's sitting alone because he's the Lord of the manor. And he's, he's uh, the prime minister. He's a very important man, but he's also sitting alone because he's a Canaanite. And the Egyptians knew that. It's not necessarily the case, though, that the brothers know that. They just see the, the lord of the manor sitting by himself. And then they see the Egyptians. They understand why the Egyptians are sitting by themselves, of course. Because they um, will not eat with, with them. It's an abomination to them. We, we sometimes act... I, I mean, we are... We are, this is one of, I, I'm so confused, I don't even know how to say it. This is one of the most bizarre nations that's ever existed at this moment in time. 
We actually think that racial animus started here in like the 20th or maybe even the 21st century. Do we not know that throughout the world people have not liked different people and other people and not wanted to eat with them? I mean, it still happens, believe it or not, outside the United States. But we walk around bewailing and beating our chests and say, ah, you know. I have to tell you, I, I, you know, and this is an Englishman speaking to Americans. Actually, this is one of the least racist nations on earth. I've been some, to some nations where it's like, holy mackerel. But here they did not want to eat with them. Now, it wasn't just ethnic. There was a, a religious reason for it, I'm sure. Uh, we aren't told specifically what the, uh, and I am not that familiar with Egyptian religion. Later on, of course, we would see the separation that God placed between his people and the nations and dietary restrictions so that they weren't allowed to eat with them. But one of the things that, and this has, there is a, a purpose to this that I'm, I'm building on. One of the wonderful things that we see in the gospel is the breaking down of those racial barriers, the breaking down of the middle wall of separation. It doesn't occur anywhere else. So that, for instance, we see Peter going into the house of a Roman centurion and eating with him because God has told him that he can do that now, that food is no longer unclean to him, that he is able to eat everything that moves on the earth. And he is able now to celebrate, to eat, and even to have the Lord's Supper with people who were Gentile. We don't appreciate exactly how wonderful the reconciling effect of the gospel is, bringing together people who were at, uh, anciently at loggerheads, who hated each other, who would not have anything to do with one another, but in Christ we are reconciled. And we can not just eat together here on earth, but we can eat together in eternity at the Lamb's High Feast. And that should be something that we rejoice in, in a world that's so balkanized and split apart, that we have the way, the only means, really, of affecting real harmony between men. And that has to come through the end, obviously, of the disunion, the disunity that's occurred with God because of our sin and then the union that occurs. But here, obviously, this, the tables are still separated for this moment. But they are amazed, aren't they, uh, that they are seated according to their ages. How would this man know? And it plays into the, his later assertion. He tells them, such a man as I can certainly practice divination. I can figure these things out. Now, um, I, I saw and experienced this kind of divination uh, when before I was a Christian, I was still being brought by my, my mother, for instance, when I was young, to psychic fairs and things like that. This is one of the oldest um, acts in the book, literally, where psychics and fortune tellers and palm readers and so on will get information about you through other means and then pretend it's been revealed to them. And everybody goes, wow, how could you possibly know that? Well, she checked your social media page a few moments ago before <laughs> you sat down. That kind of thing. It's actually, it's not that hard. In this case, of course, Joseph knows the order of their birth because he's their brother. He knows Benjamin, for instance, was the last born because he's his brother. He knows Reuben is first and so on. So he seats them according to their ages. Benjamin, though, the strangest thing is the youngest son is particularly honored. Some commentators looking at this believe it was another test. Would this provoke them? 
that their youngest brother, would they get really obnoxious and upset? Why does he have five times as much food? I mean, we're all starving here, and the littlest gets five times as much? That's not fair. He's testing their hearts. But they don't react that way. I, I think it might have been a test as well. And then again, it might just have been blatant favoritism, the, you know, the two brothers, and Joseph giving, uh, uh, giving the extra portion to the particularly beloved brother. I'm not sure which it is. But either way, the, the fact that the brothers do not react with outrage is an indication that the Lord is working on them and in them, and we'll see that. But they can't figure out what is, is happening. They can't figure all of the events that are going. It's just utterly bizarre to them. But we know, you know, I know, that the Lord was working his will in the lives of these brothers. He was preparing them. And Joseph was testing them. Then the real test is, as Meredith Klein put it, whether they had had a change of heart. Are they different? Because we remember how abominable the brothers were before, how they had uh, essentially plotted to murder him and then sold uh, Joseph into slavery, how Judah had acted so shamefully and so on, the awful sin that they had entered into and the sinful habits that they were developing, the way that they were falling over into Canaanite religion, allowing syncretism to take their hearts. Now what is the Lord doing? He's put them in the crucible of affliction. Why has he put them in the crucible of affliction? So that the dross and the gunk and all of the stuff that's not in keeping with being a member of God's covenant people is being melted away. They're being changed. They're being refined. They are being humbled and greatly in a way that couldn't have happened if they had remained in the promised land. Now, why do I make that application? Because we serve the same God they did. And he will often take us through exactly the same process. The things that happen in our lives may be inscrutable to us, but they are actually the evidences of God's ongoing work in our lives, breaking us down. C.S. Lewis wrote something very profound. I want to, uh, unfortunately, if you're my Facebook friend, you've already read it, maybe. But um, it's profound nonetheless, and I do want you to hear it. Lewis wrote, imagine yourself living, sorry, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right, and he stops the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Brothers and sisters, Lewis also said that often the pain that we experience is the effect of God chipping away the portions of us that don't look like Christ. In order for us to be built up in the way that God intends, he's going to have to break down the mess that he found. Often a contractor will look at a house and say, well, I'm going to have to tear it down. I'm going to have to tear down most of the, the parts of it in order to build what you want. There's just no other way. The foundation needs to be set properly. And then we need to put the walls in the way that they should be a coat of paint isn't going to cut it. And brothers and sisters, a coat of paint is not going to cut it with us either. 
If we are going to be conformed to the image of Christ, it has to be root and branch. It has to be radical. It has to be that we're brought through the furnace, that we're remade, remolded, and then re-poured so that we look like Christ. And this is a process that we do not enjoy. Most of the people, unless they are masochists at heart, really do not enjoy uh, most of uh, the ranger course, I'm told. It is very painful. Uh, it seems to go on forever, and it's designed to break the weak, specifically. That's what they're attempting to do, to bring you to your breaking point so that only those who have hidden reserves of strength will be able to continue on. And yet, at the end of the day, they produce something far better than that which started in the course, and that through pain and affliction. We somehow as a society have gotten this bizarre idea that comfort and, and uh, constant coddling and so on, that that's the way that we build up the best kind of people. It's not. God's way certainly has always been to test his children, to put them through the furnace of affliction. Go through, think to yourself about all of the great leaders in the Bible. All of them had to go through the process of affliction. That would include Moses and David and so on. But most importantly, who was the man of sorrows and afflicted with grief for his entire earthly sojourn? Christ. Christ suffered humiliation. Christ had nowhere to lay his head. He slept rough on the road. He traveled with 12 guys who seemed to get it wrong continuously and couldn't do anything but bicker when he wasn't watching over them directly. He endured the hatred of the government. Uh, there were entire groups trying to cancel him all the time and so on. And yet he set his face like flint and continued the, the work that God had set for him, going up eventually to Calvary for our sake. Brothers and sisters, if that was the example that's been set by Christ, if he took his cross upon his shoulders and walked the Via Dolorosa, the road of sorrows, in order that we might be saved, why do we think that we are too good to take up our own lesser crosses and walk after him as we head towards glory? Your calling is to go where Christ has gone. And he walked a difficult road. Here in this fallen world, we will walk a difficult road as well. But Christ knew that what he was doing was according to God's plan. Not my will, but thine be done, he said to the Father. Are you willing to, the say, to say the same thing to Christ? Not my will, but thine be done. When the times are rough, to say, not my will, but thine be done. I know that although I'm not enjoying this, it is your holy will for my life. And it will work for my good eventually, although I don't see it now. We have to be, brothers and sisters, if we're going to be Christ followers. No cross, no crown. That was the way the Puritans put it, and they were right. Be willing to endure crosses on this side of glory, this momentary, this brief and momentary life, this time of testing and probation, which is like a vapor. It arises in the morning like the mist, and then the sun comes up and burns it away. That's what our lives are. They are so very quick. I can say that now that my life is, is probably <laughs> more than half over. Maybe more than that. I don't know. But it's also very fast. One moment, your children are you know, walking around like this. <laughs> and the next minute, they're driving your car. Hopefully not into telephone poles and things like that. 
But it all happens like that. It really does. In perspective, looking back, our lives are very quick. How did we live them will be the question. And for whose glory? I hope, brothers and sisters, that your aim in your life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever and to be able to say truthfully, even though sometimes we don't enjoy it, thy will be done to Christ every day of your life. Let's go before him now. God our Father, Lord, we don't have that we don't have that God's eye perspective. We don't have the uh, we don't have the Bible of our lives. So we don't see the end from the beginning. But Lord, help us to remember you do. And therefore to walk by faith and not by sight. To accept your will, to accept your pain as you rebuild us, as you make us over into that palace in which you wish to dwell, Lord. I pray that you would conform us to the image of Christ. Help us to be willing to say Thy will be done no matter what's happening in our lives and never to despair, to know that we have a God who loves us and who has promised to work good for, our, for his church and we are part of that great assembly. Help us to remember therefore that you mean good for your children and what father doesn't chasten the child whom he loves? We know you love us more than we can possibly understand and therefore chastening will come our way. But help us to remember it is for our good and it comes from the hand of a loving father. And we pray this.